Well, you may have noticed that this is uh, President's Week. I have an announcement. No, I'm not. Just kidding. Uh, 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 no, I'm happy to uh, fill in this morning, and I uh, would like to, to be honest with you, I, I'm going to take you back to a passage that is a favorite of mine, and some of you may have heard me dilated on the past, and uh, if so, it's going to be the same old stuff. But uh, it is important. Take your Bible will you, uh, with, with will you, and go with me to Luke chapter 2. And I'd like us to focus in on an incident in the life of Jesus, and I come back to it's a favorite passage of mine, and I enjoy preaching from it. I will say this, that uh, I think it's always timely in a crowd such as this, because uh, it says in Luke chapter 2 and verse 41 that Jesus' parents used to go to Jerusalem year by year at the Feast of the Passover, and when he became 12, they went up. Now, the, the reason that, that this resonates with me, and I think ought to resonate with you, is this, that the reference to Jesus being 12 years of age is significant because what's going on? What does that mean? Jesus being 12 has just, he has just gone through what? His bar mitzvah. You're familiar with that. Every culture generates, sometimes formally, as in the Jewish culture, and sometimes rather informally, as in our own, cultures tend to develop one or more means by which a child passes into adulthood. We call that the rite of passage. Are you familiar with that? And cultures will generally have some sort of rite of passage. Now, in the Hebrew culture, the rite of passage was, in fact, bar mitzvah. Bar mitzvah was the means by which you, you left childhood and you entered the privileges and adult and, and responsibilities of adulthood. You know what it is in our in our culture it seems to me that gets you from adult from childhood to adulthood? It's supposed to? Doesn't always work. I think it's college. Isn't it? When you think about it? In most at least the kids who go off to college, the idea is you go off a kid and we all hope we're putting a lot of money into this that you come home an adult. And uh, that's sort of the idea. And, and, uh, uh, and, 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 and I would just suggest to you, honestly, that, that uh, the, the, the experience, of, let's say it this way, that the stage of life through which Jesus is passing, which is described here in Luke 2, verses 41 to 52, is really very, very parallel to your... Now, he's young, and so at first you might say, well, he's 12 years of age. I went through that a long time ago. Well... Uh, without getting too deeply into it, honestly, understand that, that in this culture, uh, maturation, uh, children matured more, care, more, more, uh, quickly. There were more responsibilities demanded of them, more, uh, and, and more uh, duties imposed upon them at a younger age. And therefore, honestly, by the time they hit mid-teens, they were supposed to be functioning as an adult. As a matter of fact, you probably know that in Jesus' day, young women were usually married in their early teens and young men in their mid-teens. And, uh, and so, honest to goodness, by the time you... That's exactly what Bar Mitzvah was all about. You were treated as a child until you went through the time appointed by the Father, and then you emerged an adult. And that's what's going on in Jesus' life. And so I'd like to challenge you with what you have. You know, it's interesting that uh, you have in the, in the, in the, uh, the Gospels... You have very, very 
full nativity narratives. You have a lot told you about Jesus' birth and infancy, or at least his, his birth. And then, of course, you have a very careful record of his adult ministry. The only glimpse you have at the life of Jesus in between the time, actually, between the time when Jesus is taken by his parents to Nazareth. Remember, after Jesus was born, his parents had fled to Egypt. And then when Herod had died, uh, they, had, they had brought Jesus up from Egypt. And the Bible says that when they heard that Herod Archelaus was ruling in Bethlehem, remember all this, they determined to settle in Nazareth. So they took baby Jesus and went up to Nazareth. The next glimpse you have, that is the next note you have about the life of Jesus, is when he goes to be baptized by John the Baptist, except Luke 2. This is the only glimpse you have at Jesus' life in between infancy and adulthood. And I think it's very significant. I draw a lot of application out of this because I think the Spirit of God uh, very carefully insinuated this particular event into the record. I think we should be confronted by who Jesus is and what's happening. Now, to help you do that, and you see where I'm taking you? I'd like to, without being too cosmic about it, I'd like to, 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 to really, I'd like to encourage you to, to allow the Spirit of God to confront you with the pattern of Jesus right here. And I would suggest to you, though, that the pattern has timeless application, it has application to people of all ages, to be sure, it has perhaps special application to you because Jesus is at the stage of life in this record that you are at right now. He's struggling with the same things in, in the maturation of life that you're struggling with right now. There's really, there's hardly another time in the record when you have a priest which can be more thoroughly touched with the feeling of your infirmities than this record right here. That's what I'm saying to you. Now, in order to go one more step before I get into the text, um, and, and, and several of you have heard me dilate on this, and other, it's a passion with me, you know that, but I would really like to, to help you understand, or at least to... Uh, to make sure that this passage has the impact on you that it, that it ought to, I think it's very important for you to take a moment, for us to take a moment, and just come to grips with the reality of Jesus' humanity. Now, you know, if you've sat through my words and works of Christ or whatever, uh, actually, I don't have to be, I mean, I can get to this from most anywhere. You probably know that, forgive me, but uh, uh, because I really cherish the doctrine of humanity, the humanity of Christ. And it is my persuasion that in the very noble and legitimate and necessary and virtuous determination to protect the doctrine of Jesus' deity, that we have, in fact, evangelical world has to a significant degree underestimated or undervalued, paid less attention than it deserves to the humanity of Christ. And I would just like to challenge you with the reality that Jesus was, in fact, the God-man. And that, therefore, Jesus knew what it was. Now, he was... You believe, do you not, that Jesus was God, very God. But you also believe, whether you know it or not, that is, this is part of Orthodox Christology, that Jesus is man, very man. It's my persuasion that all too often we consider Jesus as sort of God dressed up like man. It's what I call the Superman syndrome. That we think of Jesus sort of like Clark Kent. Uh, he wasn't really Clark Kent. He just dressed up like Clark Kent. There was a reason to do it, and so he pretended to be Clark Kent. And every once in a while, Superman would have to pretend not to be able to see through a wall so that people wouldn't realize, you know, really think he was Clark Kent. And so we have Jesus, sort of, he's really God, and he really knows all things, and he can never be surprised, and there's never anything that he learns, because after all, he's God. 
but he pretends to be man. Now, I don't believe that. I don't understand this, and I believe that there are a number, there are many things in theology that I believe that I don't fully understand, but I believe with all my heart that Jesus was not God dressed up like man. He was the God-man. And though he was God, very God, he was also man, very man. Do you believe that? And that all of the limitations which are intrinsic to unfallen humanity, Jesus submitted himself to. He submitted himself to every limitation that is intrinsic to what it means to be unfallen humanity. I stress unfallen. He was not fallen, but he was man, very man. Does that make sense to you or not? Can you live? I'll give you a test here. Can you live, for instance, with the possibility that there were things which Jesus did not know? Now, does the Bible not say that there were things that Jesus did not know? The Bible says explicitly in Mark 13, and to be honest with you, and I don't mean to get after anybody here, but I see people do some rather interesting uh, hermeneutical gymnastics to get around what this verse says, but it says that it is not given to you to know the time of the, the, the Lord's coming. It is not given to the angels. It is not given to the Son of Man to know that. Isn't that what it says? I always use this illustration. When Jesus went to raise Lazarus from the dead in an absolutely remarkable passage, he comes, he knows exactly what he's going to do. And he tells Martha. Martha comes out to remonstrate him. If you'd have been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And Jesus says he's going to live again. And she says, well, I know he's going to live again in the resurrection, but I want him now. And she says, wait a minute, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? And, and, and if you believe on me, though you are dead, you, you, you how do you say, you shall live. You, you'll, you'll not die. And, and, and he says, do you believe this? And Martha concurs with it. And then Jesus says, where is the tomb? Remember that? Now, this one who is God, very God, who knew exactly what he was doing and had come to raise Lazarus from the dead, Honestly, I take it to mean did not know where that tomb was. So I am just saying to you that there are things. What do you think? Can you live with this? Uh, I'll tell you something. There is a. I always use this. There, there is a. Uh, there is an apocryphal gospel. It is a bunch of hooey. It's called the Gospel of the Infancy. Okay, it's about third century. It's bogus day one. All everything about it. Uh, I appeal to it not to encourage you to go and make it part of your devotional life, but. Uh, but there is this, this apocryphal gospel, not part of the Roman Catholic apocrypha, it's another apocryphal book. It's called The Gospel of the Infancy. It tells, this is the book that tells all about the supposed miracles did when Jesus was a boy, where he would, he and his friends would be making little clay animals out of mud and he would breathe on his little clay doves and they'd fly off and all this sort of thing. And everywhere Jesus went, little tulips would, would jump up where his foot was and, and all this sort of thing. All these crazy stories. Well, that same, which is, again, it's all a bunch of lies, but, the Gospel of the Infancy says, I use this just as sort of a negative illustration. The Gospel of the Infancy says that when Jesus was born, as Mary was wrapping him in swaddling clothes and about to lay him in the manger, that Jesus, the newborn baby, looked up at her and said, Handle me carefully, I'm the Son of God, you wouldn't want to drop me. Now you see, you see, that's, that, 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 that's hard. That's, you know, that's taking some of the fun out of the nativity story for you, isn't that what happened? And, and it didn't happen. And my point is, you don't believe that because you know very well that Jesus had to learn to talk. He had to learn to, to walk. He was, a, he was a human being. And folks, the clear record, and I'll tell you something, this is so important because, this is extra, but this is so important because on the one hand, if it is, do you realize this? According to the scriptures, Jesus' humanity is every bit as important to his 
his capacity to save as is his deity. It is by reason of the fact that God, Jesus is God, very God, that his death has an infinite dimension and that his death can suffice to cover the holiness of an infinitely holy God. So you can't have propitiation without deity. Propitiation is the satisfaction of God's offended holiness, right? And the reason that the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin is because those are finite sacrifices. And the reason that Jesus' death can suffice to cover God's holiness is because Jesus has, is the God-man. And there is, in some inscrutable sense, an infinite dimension to his death. But by the same token, the reason that his sin can, that his death can cover you, the reason that your sin can be applied to him, is because he is your kinsman. So just as there can be no propitiation without deity, there can be no atonement without humanity. Jesus' real humanity is every bit, biblically, every bit as important to his, to his atoning work as is his deity. And furthermore, it is by reason of his humanity that he is able to be touched with the feeling of your infirmities. And he genuinely knows what it is to live within the limitations of humanity. He learned what it is to obey by the things that he suffered in his incarnation, Hebrews says. I always, again, forgive me if I'm going over old ground, but this, this, this always touches me. Jesus on the cross commends Mary to John the Apostle. You remember that. He turned to Mary and said of John, behold your son, and to John he said of Mary, behold your mother. And the question arises, why is it that Jesus felt obliged to turn Mary over to John. Was it because there was no other family? No, we know there was other family. The other, we, we have the names of his brothers. Many people, most as a matter of fact, assume that Jesus did this by reason of poverty, that he knew that his brothers were so poverty-stricken that they wouldn't be able to sufficiently care for their mother. I reject that. They were going to be no more poverty-stricken after his death and resurrection than they were before. And it was nothing, there was no obligation more incumbent upon, upon children in that culture than that they care for their aged parents. And, and, and for Jesus to remove from his brothers the obligation to care for Mary would, I think, have verged on the wicked. There's got to be another reason, and I think the reason given to us in John 7, where it says explicitly that Jesus' brothers did not believe on him. And so now you get the picture of Jesus hanging on the cross, and he is so overwhelmed by the reality that his own brothers don't believe on him that he determines to turn Mary over to the care of, a, of, of one who does believe. Now, where am I taking with that? If you adopt the standard view of Jesus as simply God dressed up like humanity, then you have Jesus, if you don't mind, sort of hanging on the cross, and you would have thought he said something like this, perhaps in his mind, well, it's a, it's, 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 it's a heartbreak that my brothers have not yet believed on me, but I know that I'm going to die in three days, I'm going to return, and then I'll go visit my brother James, and he'll become a believer. Matter of fact, he's going to become the, 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 the pastor of the church of Jerusalem. So I'll just, you know, it doesn't make any difference. That makes sense to you? If he, in fact, had the capacity, I think he had the capacity, but if in his kenosis he knew all things, which I don't believe he did, he chose not to know them. We're getting into a lot of high Christology here, don't let me confuse you, but... But he was certainly God, very God, and had he desired, had he chosen to abandon the kenosis, abandon the incarnation, 
and take to himself all of the, 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 the independent exercise of the attributes he had laid aside, he could have known that, but I don't believe he did. And I'm saying to you, I'm going back to this business, I think you have a priest who can be touched with the feeling of your infirmities. I believe that if Jesus hanged there on the cross, he was burdened not only with the reality that, 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 that the sins of the world have been placed upon him, but he was broken over the fact that his own brothers didn't believe on him. And by reason of the self-emptying, which is part of the kenosis or the incarnation, Jesus had not been, had not, did not, did, had no way of knowing apart from the Spirit's revealing it to him specifically, and the Spirit hadn't done that. Jesus had no way of knowing that they were going to. And so here's my point. Do you have loved ones who are lost? Does your heart break over the reality that people whom you love dearly, maybe part of your own family, don't know the Lord? See, it's my persuasion that Jesus knows what that feels like. That Jesus hang there on the cross, burdened with the awful realization that his own brothers had never believed on him. Now, now my point is to come way back. The, the doctrine of Jesus' humanity is absolutely explicit in the scripture. It is doctrinally and practically important. I think we, we really undervalue it. And it's very important in this passage. Because I am going to suggest to you that in this passage, Jesus is making some deliberate decisions about the course of his life. And there are some of the same sort of decisions that you have to struggle with. And unfortunately, we strip the, the humanity out of Jesus sometimes in our, in our, in our, in our, the way we sort of imagine him living out his life and we have him just sort of methodically, plastically, unthinkingly walking through a life of no decisions just because all he ever does, he has no, he, you know, he has no tendency but to do anything but, but, uh, exactly what, what is right. And I, don't get me wrong, don't get me wrong. Jesus is not fallen. And therefore, he has, he has no temptation to sin, but he has some real struggles, I believe, and some of them are resident in this. Now, if, if I've confused you horribly, forgive me, but I'm trying to be very quick. But let me take you to Luke chapter 2 and verse 41. Just point out three things very quickly. It says, when he became 12, I'm in verse 42, when he became 12, they went up there according to the feast, the custom of the feast. Now, that is, they are going up, they're going from Nazareth up to Jerusalem, up south, but they're going to go uphill. To Jerusalem. By the way, uh, Jesus, of course, uh, was re was reared up in Galilee, uh, and Galilee is separated from Judea. Is uh, Jerusalem is in Judea, and Galilee is separated from Judea by Samaria. And Samaria was a land that the Jews hated, and they felt that they would defile themselves by even setting their foot on Samaritan soil. And there was a very accessible, what's called the Ridge Route, or the Way of the Patriarchs. And you could climb up on the Ridge Route up in Galilee and make your way south, and it was really quite a pleasant walk. But the Jews from Galilee didn't do that, especially, by the way, at Passover season, because they were going up to celebrate a feast, and they really thought that they might defile themselves if they made contact with, heat, uh, with Samaritan soil. So if you can picture it, what they would do is they would go down to the Jordan Rift, Cross the Jordan Rift, where they would be outside of Samaritan soil. Then they would make their way down the Jordan Rift to Jericho, recross the Jordan the Jordan River, and and make the the climb up to Jerusalem. Now, when they did that, number one, it was a much more difficult trek, but number two, it exposed them to some danger because they're going to be walking close to the desert and so on. So you don't go alone. That's where I'm taking you. And they would gather villages and so on. This was a pilgrimage feast, and you'd have a lot of Jews going up to Jerusalem. 
And so they would gather in, in, in groups, you know, sizable groups that could protect themselves. And they had a rather standard marching uh, pattern. I mean, it was just the way things were done. The men would be out front. They would be discussing the weightier matters of the law and sort of charting the way and so on. And the women would be behind carrying the luggage. And uh, you, the kids would be either place. You didn't know for sure. So, so Joseph is up here and Mary's back here on the way home, of course. And, uh, uh, well, pick up the, the narrative. It says, verse 43, as they were returning after the spending the full number of days. They had gone down. They had celebrated Passover. It was an extended feast. They had perhaps been there as much as eight days. But now they are returning. And it says, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem and his parents were unaware of it. And that's the point. It seems uh, awful careless of uh, Joseph and Mary that they would just wander off and leave young Jesus behind. But remember, number one, Jesus, and I'm going to talk out of the other side of my mouth here doctrinally, Jesus, though he was the God-man, he was, he was unfallen humanity. And Jesus did, in fact live a life of sinlessness. I do not believe that Jesus as a boy did any miracles, and you may know that I have a rather high view of the word miracle, but when Jesus day by day was told, you know, it's time to quit playing, come on in, put away your toys, he did something, you know, that borders on the miraculous. You know, he came in and put away his toys. And, uh, and so all through their life, uh, Mary and Joseph, he, they'd never, they, they never had to worry about this boy. Whatever was demanded of him, whatever was, was his proper responsibility, Jesus had done it. I often think, time out again, the Bible says that James, his brother, didn't believe on him. You know, I often think Jesus must have been a hard act to follow. You know, I just, how many times must Mary have grabbed James by the shoulders and given him a good shake and said, why can't you be more like your brother Jesus? You know, I mean, after a while, you get a little tired of that if you're James, probably. But, uh, but having said that, the point is that... Uh, uh, I think part of the reason is, you know, they just figured they, that Jesus is an absolutely trustworthy boy, a remarkable trustworthy boy. And, uh, and so they set out, and, and Mary, look at verse uh, 44, they supposed him to be in the company, the caravan. And so they went a day's journey, and they began looking for him among their relatives. The idea is you would travel not as family units, as nuclear family units, until you got out to the place where you're going to camp. And then that night you'd, you'd, you'd get together with your, with your family and they start to look for Jesus and they can't find Jesus anywhere. And so they, and by the way, as I told you before, this is sort of dangerous territory. By now they're down close to the Jordan Rift. And, and by the way, there are, there are nomadic robbing tribes that know that there's a great deal of traffic on the highway and they just lay in wait for someone who is off by himself and they can, uh, they can rob. And so they can't go back at night. So it says, uh, they began looking for him among the relatives and acquaintances there in the campground, as it were. And when they didn't find him, they returned to Jerusalem. Now, you've got to understand that was the next morning. They would wait until the morning and probably uh, with some concern because they are traveling alone, making maybe getting a couple of friends to go with them. We're not told. They make their way back up the highway. And it came about that on the third day they found him, verse 46. Now, the point is that you're a day out and it gets dark and you camp. So then the second day, you're a day back. It's dark by now. So on the third day, they go to looking for him. And they look all over Jerusalem. They probably had some friends and relatives who lived in the city. They go first of all to those places. And finally, they think, well, let's go up to the Temple Mount, this marvelous Herodian temple that had been constructed for the last 40 years and was standing at this time. And so they go up to the mount, and verse 46, it came that after three days, they found him in the temple, in the confines of the temple, and out on the court of the Gentiles. Let me tell you one other thing real quickly. 
In this day, uh, every young Jewish boy was carefully schooled in the Old Testament. Jesus himself would have been trundled off to the local synagogue at the age of about four. A boy would be taught to, to, to read at his mother's knee. But then as soon as he was able to read in, in Jewish uh, culture, he would be uh, sent off six days a week to the, uh, to the local synagogue. And there in the synagogue, every synagogue had attached to it what was called the house of the book. And the scribe who was hired by the synagogue to keep the Torah and so on would also be a teacher of the young men. And so you would be schooled in the law. As a matter of fact, I always tell my survey classes that uh, the uh, first book that that four or five-year-old child would begin to study was Leviticus. And the first thing he would do would, was memorize Leviticus. There are some of you sitting here this morning who still haven't memorized Leviticus. But, uh, but uh, Leviticus was precious to them. That explained their approach to God. But having said that, the point is that if you, uh, and, and you would continue in that training until you were bar mitzvah. Now, after you were bar mitzvah, you would usually be, uh, you would be uh, apprenticed to a trade of some sort. And, and after that, book learning was pretty much over. You'd spend your own time in, in the scriptures perhaps, but as far as formal training, unless you wanted to be a rabbi. And if you wanted to be a rabbi, you would simply attach yourself to a, to a, to a, to a recognized rabbi. Uh, in this day, in order to be a teacher, you have to, get a, you have to get a degree and you have to get a certificate and all that sort of thing. You've got to get a job. That helps too. In that day, in order to be a teacher, there was only one thing you needed to be a teacher, and that was students. If you had students, you were a teacher. And you would attach yourself to the rabbi. And basically, the, 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 uh, the, the regimen was this, that you would, uh, you would travel around usually following the work. Maybe you'd go down to the docks for a while, and then maybe you'd go inland to the harvest when the harvests were coming in. And during the day, the students would go off, get day labor jobs, earn enough money, come back, give it to the rabbi, and the rabbi would spend the money, and he'd buy the food and so on. And uh, in the evening, you would simply sit and powder yourself in the dust of the rabbi's feet. That was the phrase. And uh, the rabbi would teach you, and it was sort of a wandering. Well, the point is that at feast season, a lot of these rabbis would bring their little group of, of, of students, and, and they would come in and, and hold court in the temple. Rabbinical teaching, by the way, was all Socratic. It was all give and take. The rabbi would throw out thorny, difficult questions, and you would talk about them and discuss them, and he would, he would critique and so on. It was all give and take, as opposed, by the way, to the child's education. Child's education was all rote. I tell you what to believe, you say it back to me. I believe in that. But at any rate, uh, I know that the big passion today is you've got to teach people how to think. It's my personal persuasion that before you are taught how to think, you ought to be taught what to think. I really believe that. Because I believe God has handed down a body of revealed truth that de deserves to be handed on from one generation to the next intact. And though you ought to engage it and, and honestly question it and so on, that is you ought to honestly try and understand it as best you possibly can, it is a body of revealed truth. But having said that, that's what's at stake here in verse 40, 46. They come and hear these rabbis who have sort of holding court. They, uh, they, uh, uh, Jesus encounters them. And now I'm going to give you, listen, I, I'm, I'm going to very quickly give you three points of application. I'm going to do this in minutes. Verse 46, it came about after three days they found him in the, in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and answers. And the point I want to make very simply, I would suggest there are, there are three passions that dominate Jesus' life in this, in this record very, very clearly. First of all, he is consumed by a passion for the word of his Father. It is absolutely remarkable. He hears these men 
uh, 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 sitting and discussing the, the Old Testament, and Jesus' heart resonates with that. I believe that because of Jesus' experience as a youth being trundled off to the synagogue, he had tasted the word of the Lord and found it sweet. Later on in Jesus' ministry, he's going to be tempted. And in every case, when he is tempted, he is going to respond by, by simply appealing to the word of God. Is he not? He is going to test the word of God and find it strong. And I'm telling you, young people, uh, students, this is a place where you are taught to revere this book. Uh, you live in a culture, and I very much appreciate the emphasis of Dr. MacArthur during this week, the emphasis that he brought on, on Monday morning. And I'm telling you, you live in a culture, and um, it, it, even the evangelical culture in which you live, in which a high view, a, a, the view that this book is at once true, authoritative, and sufficient. You believe that? That all that this book says is true. That all that it says possesses an authority that no other truth claim can possibly possess. And that therefore this book is, is not all truth, but it is absolutely sufficient as the word of God revealed. You will not ver find very many corners of evangelical Christianity, which honestly believe that. And I wanted to take some time, and I won't do it, I've, dwindled, I've, I've frittered my time elsewhere, but I'll tell you just in a sentence that, that I am absolutely amazed at the creative and what I would regard as destructive strategies that are developed to erode the character of this book by people who claim to believe this book. And uh, Dr. McCarthy, Philip Johnson responds to this. I found the book tremendously helpful. In my own mind, and I don't know that this would be true in very many, else, very many other people's mind, but I find Philip Johnson in that book, which I commend to you, responding to Noel's book, Scandal of the Evangelical Mind. And you read the scandal, and quite frankly, what do you have? You have a man who professes profound embarrassment over the fact that there are still people who believe what this book says about creation and about the second coming. Now, if you hold either of those two things dear, that is, that what the Bible says about God's creative activity is authoritative and true, or that what the Bible says about the program for the end of time, if you find either of those things dear, and if you believe what the Bible has to say about that, you see what I'm saying to you? There are many who will insist today that you are an embarrassment to the cause of Christ. And that the only reason we have Christianity has been so thoroughly marginalized in our culture is because there are still Neanderthal types who really believe what the Bible has. And that, that concerns me, concerns me deeply. And I'm saying to you that Jesus, I'll take it as a pattern, that Jesus believed in this book, that he believed this was the very word of his father, that he was hungry for it, that he sought every opportunity to saturate himself with it, that he made it the rule of his life. And this is the God-man. This is the God-man who was dependent upon this book and learned what it was to simply trust in the veracity of this work, the, the, the truth of this word. And I would compel you. I don't believe it's going to be easy to stand. I don't think it's going to get any easier, let's put it that way, to stand for this book. One of the most amazing things in my life, and I will say it in his absence, is that Dr. John MacArthur maintains the kind of standing he does in the broader evangelical community when he takes the kind of stand he does publicly on this book. I honor him for it. I'm mystified by it. I'm, I, why he is able to maintain uh, the membership that he does. That makes sense to you? I just, 
but uh, it's not a popular thing. But I'll go further. Number one, he was consumed by a desire for this, the word of his father, and I think it's because he had confidence that it was just that, that these are the very words of God. But then go a little further, and I'll say it very quickly. It says in verse 48, that when they saw him, his parents, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. And Jesus said to them, why is it that you were looking for me? Now, it's, there's nothing flippant or, or, or cynical about this. He's not saying, leave me alone. What he is saying is, why would you look elsewhere? When you return, why did you spend time looking elsewhere? Wouldn't you know that I wanted to be here? And he says, don't you know that I have to be now, the old King James has about my father's business, and this has, yeah, the Nasby has in my father's house. The reason for the, for the ambiguity is because you have a simple statement, a generative statement that says this, don't you know that I have to be about that which belongs to my father? That my focus has to be that which belongs to my father. And I'm going to subsume that under the father's work. I would say that Jesus was secondly consumed by a dedication to his father's work. Now, the interesting thing here is that I haven't got time to get into this, but suffice it to say, Jesus knew he was Messiah. What he didn't know is the precise timing of the Father. And I believe that Jesus very possibly thought, well, I am now an adult. I've gone through my bar mitzvah. It's time for me to be busy about my Father's business. Why not get about the business of messianic identity right now? How long is it going to be? We'll come back to this in the next moment. But it's going to be some 20 years before Jesus does that. But I believe Jesus is consumed by a dedication, a, a just a, a, he, he is anxious to be about his father's work. He wants to be about the business of being Messiah. And, well, let me just say this. Jesus understands the Old Testament. He understands what it means to complete the work of his father when, uh, as Messiah. Later on, when he confronted the woman at the well, and then the disciples came back and offered him bread, and he said, no, I'm not hungry, and Jesus said this, uh, remember, they were amazed, this is John chapter 4, that he wasn't hungry. And he said, I have food to eat that you know not of. My meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. And I would submit to you that Jesus knew what it was going to cost before he could say to Palestine, it is finished. And yet he was hungry to be busy about it. Now, let me ask you something, honestly, personally. Are you tired? You know, the campus seems a little tired. It's that sort of time of the year. Honest to goodness, I'm going to make a very, very practical application. You've got five weeks left. You've got a holy stewardship that God's given you here. And, and this year represents that stewardship. Yesterday morning in survey, some of you were there. You may have noticed I did everything short of standing on my hands. I was hopping around. I was screaming and yelling. I think maybe two of you woke up for a couple of seconds. And now I'm not getting after you. I'm just saying this is the time of the year. When, uh, when, quite frankly, especially for those, nah, I won't say that, but we in the, in the teaching profession feel like we're grabbing a whole lot of people by a whole lot of noses and yanking them along where they don't want to go. And I'm not getting after you. I'm honest to goodness. I'm not, this is not in, in any means a, a reproach. All I'm saying is, uh, I would implore you to be hungry about the work that God has given you here. Realize that God can bear you up and get you through. It may mean adjusting some priorities. It may mean setting aside some things that you would rather do in order to get things done, the things that you are responsible to do. But I would implore you after the pattern of Jesus to be busy about the work that God has set before you. And I think the next five weeks could be telling for some of you. So I'm just trying to make a very pertinent application. But then verse 51, notice what it says. Well, verse 50 says they didn't understand the statement which he had made to them. 
And then it says he went down with them and came to Nazareth and continued in subjection to them and his mother treasured all these things. Folks, being hungry about, my final point is this, that Jesus was consumed by devotion to his father's will. And the will of the father right then in his life was simply that he continue to function as the humble son of Joseph and Mary, to work as a carpenter's apprentice. And for some 20 years, he hides himself in Nazareth. And, and, and nobody hears anything about him. He, knowing who he is and so on, is so submissive to the Father's will that he just goes, and for another 18, 20 years, he waits upon the time of the Father's choosing. It's really a remarkable testimony. And I'm telling you something, and I'll say what I said before. The Father's will for you right now is to be a student. There is nothing you can do. I'm going to say something that will rankle some of you. There is nothing you can do at this point in your life that is more important than attending to your studies. Now, there may be some things that are just as important, but I would submit to you that there is nothing. And you know what? Sometimes I'm going to confess our institutional sins. Sometimes we frame this campus in such a way that we suggest to you that maybe there's something more important. But I'm telling you, I believe that God's stewardship to you right now, and frankly, what most of you are paying a whole lot of money for is to get an education. And you may be hungry about changing the world. You may be hungry about a ministry that God has for you right now. Jesus knew what the Father's will was right for, right now, and he attended to it. And I'm telling you, the Father's will for you right now, and can I be so bold as to say you're living in sin if you don't attend to this, is to be busy about the studies that God has put in front of you. You agree with that? See what I'm saying to you? I'd like to put a spiritual spin on that. We put a, a, a spiritual spin. Boy, it's gotten quiet in here, hasn't it? We, we put a spiritual spin on almost everything on this campus except studies. It's a stewardship. And you are equipping yourself. And you may say, well, I got this class or that class. doesn't seem all that important. It is important. And you trust the providences of God. You give yourself to the responsibility that God has set before you right now at this stage in your life. And it's, I believe with all my heart that you're pressing yourself into the pattern of Jesus Christ, who is right here at this point in his life, and he realized what the father had for him, and he got busy about it. It happened to be being a carpenter in Nazareth, but he got busy about it. So I'm saying here, Jesus at a point in his life very much like yours, he was consumed by a, devo- a desire for his father's word, by a dedication to his father's work, and by a devotion to his father's will, even when it wasn't what he really may have longed for, first of all. Okay, let's have a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, I thank you so much for the pattern of Jesus. We worship him because he is God, very God, our Savior. We honor him because he is our kinsman. And Father, we don't understand this, but we rejoice in it. And we certainly we certainly rejoice in the fact that because he, being God, very God, thought it not something to be held on to at all costs to be regarded as equal, with God, but took upon himself a form of a, ser- a serpent because of a servant. Because of that, we have a high priest who can be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. And we rejoice over that. We rejoice, I would rejoice over the pattern that he has set for us. And I'd ask that you'd help us to press ourselves into that image. Father, I thank you for every one of these young people. I believe it is in your careful and loving providences that they are in this place. They represent all sorts of different levels of maturation, both spiritual and, and intellectual. But Father, in each case, you have brought them to this place. You have a purpose and a will for each one in this place right now. Father, might you help that one to be, each one to be faithful to the stewardship and thus to, to profit as you intend for them to profit from the time they have here. We'll thank you for it in Christ's name. Amen.